I'd like to welcome everyone this morning. It's a beautiful spring day, and um, at these uh, events, uh, these day-longs at Spirit Rock, I always like to begin the, the day with a, uh, a little of our traditional chanting. That's the, usually the way we do things. And so um, the, uh, the, the theme for the day being spring fever, uh, I thought, uh, uh, and then around the, 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 this theme generally today, um, I thought it would be uh, uh, good to do uh, some of our traditional verses on what's called dependent origination. And so uh, you probably recognize a few stray words in, in here. Uh, but anyway, uh, uh, those of you who recognize all of the words, you get three points. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, this is describing the um, the process where uh, the, the, the Buddha realizes whereby uh, all experience uh, comes into to being and how particularly the experience of, of dissatisfaction, uh, dukkha, arises and also how that is, is brought to an end. So uh, during the time that we're, we're chanting this, just uh, let your, your attention settle on the sound and use this as a, an opportunity to... Uh, Help yourself uh, to arrive and to um, bring your attention to uh, to this moment. Also, maybe the bleepings could uh, see. Along with the dependent origination, there's dependent cessation. So maybe if cell phones and other bleeping devices could be invited to cease, that would be great. Avinja Pachaya Sangara Sangara Pachaya Vinyanang Vinyana Pachaya Namarupang Namarupapachaya Salayatanang Salayatanapachaya Paso Pasampa Pachaya we dana we dana pachaya tanha tanha pachaya upadanang upadana pachaya bao bawa pachaya jati jati pachaya jaramaranang Sokapari devandukandomanas upaya sa sambavandiye vametatsa kevalatsa dukha kandatsa samudayo hoti avichayatoeva ase saviraga nirodha sangara nirodho Sangara Niroda Vinya Nani Rodo Vinya Nani Roda Na Marupani Rodo Na Marupani Roda Salayatanani Rodo Salayatanani Roda Pasani Rodo 
Pasanirodha Vedana Nirodho Vedana Nirodha Tanha Nirodho Tanha Nirodha Upada Nanirodho Upada Nanirodha Bhavanirodho Bhavanirodha Jatinirodho Jatinirodha Jaramaranang Sokapari Devandukandomanas Upayasa Nirujandie Vametatsa Kevalatsa Dukakandatsa Nirodhoti Or maybe those of you who've ever done the retreats with Goenkaji or recordings thereof, <laughs> you'll recognize those, those verses. He always uh, recites those, and uh, this is um, like a, a central teaching uh, within the, uh, the, uh, the Buddha's ex- exposition of um, what is essential spiritual understanding. And it's also, uh, it maps out the, the insight that he experienced at his own enlightenment, that when, when he was enlightened, what he was enlightened to was the process of dependent origination. And then during the three weeks after the, his, uh, his liberation, uh, all he did was he sat under these various different trees in Bodhgaya, and uh, for three weeks, uh, for seven days at a time, he would sit in one spot and he would just reflect on this teaching, dependent origination. Um, First dependent origination, and then then the cessation, and then both origination and cessation. So, if you'd been fo- totally enlightened, yeah, <laughs> you might think, "What would I do for the first three weeks after I was fully liberated?" You think maybe go to the beach, <laughs> you know. But uh, the Buddha sp- uh, sat there for three weeks, uh, just uh, reflecting on this uh, this essential insight. So this is pointing to uh, uh, this uh, central area that I'd like to use today to, to explore, to, to, which uh, I felt would be a, a helpful, interesting theme for everyone. And this is what's known in, in Buddhist uh, jargon as becoming, or bhava is the Pali word, bhava. Uh, also translated sometimes as being or existence. And so, um, the, particularly at this time of the year, springtime, with everything, everything arising, the whole green and uh, colorful world uh, bursting into action here in the Northern Hemisphere. And so that uh, it's a, um, I thought, a, a useful time to reflect on that um, energy of things coming into being. And also, in, uh, on the internal level, the qualities of uh, interest and enthusiasm, the, the, the mind being... Uh, uh, brought to a particular uh, quality uh, uh, subject, and then uh, the development of, of, of engagement, interest. How do we get enthusiastic and, and interested in things? And particularly how, um, you know, where we tend to, most people tend to love springtime and uh, be, feel inspired and energized and I think what a glorious time of the year. You know, just as the way I began the day, beautiful spring day, you know. So, oh yes, of course. <laughs> But it's, uh, I'm just reminded of a, of a conversation that Samuel Beckett uh, had with a 
a fellow um, friend of his, they were walking through a park in Paris, and it was a day like this with you know, the, all the, the, you know, the, the grass greening and all the spring flowers coming up and yeah, young lovers walking hand in hand down the lanes. And, and this fellow turned to Samuel Beckett, yeah, as we know, a famous existentialist and <laughs> face heavily lined with all kinds of uh, uh, years of, of um, uh, deep thinking and, and uh, depressed moods. And he, <laughs> And it turned, so he turned to Samuel Beckett and said, doesn't it make you feel great to be alive on a day like today? And then Beckett, in his, in his uh, inimitable Irish accent, said, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. <laughs> so I also thought, uh, I don't usually quote, uh, quote much poetry on these days. I tend to stick to the, to the um, Buddhist scriptures, but... Uh, I was remembering a, um, a poem the other day that sort of relates to this area of um, springtime and uh, youthful arisings and, uh, and also the, the shadow side of that or living in relationship to that and uh, um, what that can bring with it. And speaking of, of, of uh, Samuel Beckett, this is, this is from another Irish, uh, famous Irishman. Uh, this is a W.B. Yeats um, so probably most of you are now familiar with the first line of this poem, as it's now the, the name of a famous Hollywood film, No, uh, no Country for Old Men. But uh, it comes from a poem called Sailing to Byzantium. So I will try, <coughs> I'll try and recite a few verses for you. That is no country for old men, the young in one another's arms. Birds in the trees, those dying generations at their song. The salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, all fish, flesh, fowl, commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born and dies. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect, monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. This is not very... Age friendly. <laughs> Those of you who are graying and still feel like you're into spring fever. So. Those of us who are graying. <laughs> An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick. Unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing, for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school but studying. Monuments of its own magnificence. Therefore, I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. O sages standing in God's holy fire as in the gold mosaic of a wall, come from the fire, pern in a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away, sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal, it knows not what it is. And gather me, into the artifice of eternity. So there's more, but I'll <laughs> say that. So there are some, uh, uh, as many great poets, uh, Yeats had his own problems. <laughs> he was not a totally enlightened being, I'm sure, but he, he certainly caught a few uh, brilliant uh, insights into our, our human condition in those verses. And... Uh, he didn't like growing old. He, 
railed against uh, the aging process of the body very vigorously and uh, pointedly. But um, I, I think in, this, in these verses he talks uh, very clearly about, as he says, that is no country for old men. Like as he was growing old, he felt the contrast between his own uh, aging of his body and then this, this springtime feeling, the, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, all fish, flesh, fowl, the, the kind of the living uh, fertile world all kind of bubbling with activity. But then in that la the last line of that first verse, he says, um, uh, uh, as they commend or sum along, whatever is begotten, and, born and dies, caught in that sensual music, all neglect, monuments of unaging intellect which is a fancy way of saying they lose their mindfulness. <laughs> and so that, that was a phrase I thought I'd like to pick up on during today and to look at a little bit, that caught in that sensual music. Because we love the music, we love the springtime, the kind of the brightness and the energy of the arising part of the cycle. That kind of flush of, of vigor and uh, interest, enthusiasm. When we say, that's interesting, isn't it? Don't we assume that's a kind of positive statement? I'm really interested in, I'm really excited about, I'm very enthusiastic about. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so we, it's, there's an assumed goodness to, to that engagement and, and jumping on to the, to the next thing. Um, but as Yeats points out, caught in that sensual music, when the mind gets, gets swept up and carried away by that, that same energy of engagement and excitement and interest, then um, we neglect the monuments of unaging intellect. We lose track of, of reality, as it were. It's a very poetic way of speaking, but it catches it in its own way. That we, uh, we lose our, our mindfulness. We're so entranced with the beauty of the, of the, of the present that we, uh, we lose ourselves, we forget ourselves, we forget the, the bigger context of our, of our life and our our uh, relationship to other beings and to, to things that we're doing, or relationship to how much there's left on our credit card. <laughs> oh, wow, i got to have it. This is great. This is fantastic. This is amazing. Yes. And then, as we know, you know, uh, the, the uh, current... Maybe I, we should have changed the theme of the day. Uh, we had death and loss at the end of last year, although <laughs> the last three months <laughs> since uh, the, the, uh, the death and loss um, day long. It's uh, produced much more loss and collapse, and the plastic of, uh, of the credit cards has become worth even less. Uh, so, but there, isn't it interesting how even in the midst of, of um, that kind of uh, difficulty and pressure that everyone is experiencing, uh, so many people, uh, many of our friends, and that coming to the monastery just newly finding time, <laughs> open, their schedules have opened up since they've been laid off from work. And uh, more time to visit the to, to visit the, the monastery. We haven't actually laid off any monks yet. So. <laughs> we haven't had to cut back. Yet, so. <laughs> we're, we're losing Tanner Hinks to go to England, but uh, that's uh, that's under ex that comes under exports. Yeah. <laughs> but isn't it interesting? In the midst of, of loss, then the mind goes to try and find the next interesting thing, the next thing that will inspire, the next thing that will will encourage the next thing that will, will interest us. And, and we, we want to, to get caught in, uh, in that same energy because that was the last time we felt good was when we were inspired, we were excited, we were interested. And so I don't want to deal with this you know, collapsing economy and my 
savings that have disappeared and my house is now worth $45.53. You know. Well, forget that. Let's look at this next thing and the next and the, and the next. So caught in that sensual music is how Yeats put it. And the, the Buddha said this is the, the energy of bhava, clinging upadana and bhava, becoming the, that. So bhava literally means that, that um, process of being caught on the wave of activity. So it's like being carried forward on a, on a wave, which can be very exciting, as all surfers know. <laughs> but uh, there, there is a, a downside to that as well. All, you know, all waves break. And so that, um, what I'd like to look at today is that, that way that we can work with the energy of our lives, uh, of our minds, whether we happen to be at the springtime of our, of our particular human existence and be uh, the sort of, uh, in the early years of our, of our human life or where you know, we're in the middle or, or way on, um, we're, all, we're always dealing with that the quality of arising and the energy of our lives, regardless of the aging of, age of the body. And so it's a, uh, what's interesting is to learn how to, to, to work with that energy and direct it in a skillful way, rather than just being caught in its, uh, its chemistry. And as in that, the last verse that I, I recited, um, a very poignant uh, verse, which actually Ajahn Sumedho used to, uh, who's a, a, the senior monk of our community of uh, the Western monastics uh, who trained with Ajahn Chah. He was the first Western monk to train with Ajahn Chah. And uh, he used to quote this uh, a lot. He, he, he learned this, this poem when he was in Thailand and got fed up with watching his mind. <laughs> he used to learn to, he used to, to memorize poetry just to have a bit of an alternative to sweating and being eaten by mosquitoes and dealing with mindfulness of the breath. So. Uh, but this particular verse he found very, very powerful and was a great, uh, led to great insight for him, where uh, Yeats says, uh, Consume my heart away, sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal. It knows not what it is. And gather me into the artifice of eternity. Consume my heart away. So he's talking to the sages standing in the holy fire, the sort of these sort of spiritual archetypes. Consume my heart away. And he, he feels his own heart kind of caught up with the endless cycles of desire, this sort of swept along in becoming an endless desire and disappointment and fastened to the dying animal. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's this feeling of the heart being the, uh, a spiritual center, but it somehow got locked onto this... this uh, uh, aging human body and uh, and so when we identify with that then what we uh, experience is this kind of poignant and painful disappointment that Yeats is describing there. I, I, when I, I first heard Ajahn Sumedho reciting this poem, he was the one who introduced me to it. <coughs> I imagined it like a kind of tin can tied to a dog, sort of an old dog's tail, <laughs> sort of a, ra a ragged old dog kind of and then uh, uh, my, my heart, like a, a rattly old tin can tied to the tail of, a, of an aging dog. I thought, that's a pretty depressing image. <laughs> <laughs> but, then, but then if we identify with our hopes and, and our body and our, um, all of those uh, arising parts of our, our lives and, and we want them to be good and happy and cheerful and healthy and comfortable and <laughs> perky forever, then what that inevitably leads us to is disappointment because the body ages and, 
uh, things uh, don't always uh, work out. And they can't sustain their pleasing quality permanently. It's just not the way nature works. So that uh, then right beside that, that image, that very poignant and telling image of, of disappointment and despair, there he has this beautiful phrase, gather me into the artifice of eternity. It's a wonderful phrase. Gather me into the artifice of eternity. So it's like the quality of surrendering that self-concerned, self-centered thinking. Just like, okay, if all I can manage to be is a tin can tied to the tail of a, <laughs> an old dog, well, okay, I let it go. I give up. <laughs> and then in that surrendering of self-centered thinking, uh, self-centered obsessions, then what, what the heart opens is to is eternity, gathered into the artifice of eternity. Again, that's a very poetic and, and you know, I'm sure Buddhist uh, philosophers and pedants would say, yeah, that's not right. <laughs> There's all kinds of f- philosophical flaws in that, that imagery, but it's an it's a evocative metaphor, isn't it? Gathered into the artifice of eternity, because there's a quality of, of, of letting go, of relinquishment, of, of dissolution that's uh, evoked there, but also a quality of uh, infinite presence gathered, gathered into the artifice of eternity, letting go into that timeless, uh, limitless reality that we feel is the very uh, heart of our nature, but which is uh, lost to us often because of our busyness in chasing the, the next thing, the next interesting thing. <laughs> so when we, we, we reflect on becoming, and then in this, um, the, the verses on dependent origination, then uh, the... Uh, the, the Buddha speaks of how feeling leads to craving. Vedana leads to tanha, or conditions tanha, craving, and craving conditions clinging, and clinging conditions becoming. And then it was it's becoming that and leads to uh, <coughs> that whole um, array of, of uh, being born into uh, to disappointment and so on. Uh, but in the second part of the cycle, the, the dependent cessation, then all of these, these different pieces uh, wind up. So with the cessation of, of, uh, of craving, there's a cessation of clinging, cessation of clinging, there's a cessation of becoming. The becoming ceases, bhavani roda. And uh, with the cessation of becoming, then that, uh, the, the heart is not born into that whole um, uh, uh, kind of enthusiasm that's inflated to, uh, with promise beyond what it can possibly deliver, and so that that we are uh, able to experience that kind of quality of of the eternal, or the the infinite, that that pure nature of our own own heart, our own spirit. So that uh, the cessation of becoming, uh, even though it's, again, it's kind of Buddhist jargon, (laughs) uh, that is uh, a quality that the, the Buddha pointed to and is outlined many times in the teachings as being a, a, like a synonym for the fulfillment of the, of the spiritual life. There's one a lovely place where one of the monks is sort of wandering around saying, cessation of becoming, cessation of becoming. <laughs> and then another of the monks says, why are you walking around saying cessation of becoming? He says, well, because, uh, he says, well, cessation of becoming, this is Nibbana. And he just, it seems that he's just been sitting meditating on this particular insight crystallized around this idea. Oh, that's what it is. Nirvana is the cessation of becoming. When, when we let go of that 
uh, habituation, that chasing the next wave, that's when we experience total peacefulness. Now, when we use that kind of language, so cessation of becoming, it can, it, uh, and especially in a very life-affirming culture like this, you know, Bay Area, Northern California, springtime, you know, weekend. <laughs> it's kind of loaded. For, this is the sort of life-affirmative central. You know. so, this is a, so I'm not, I'm not suggesting this is a power of negative thinking workshop. <laughs> <laughs> so that we're trying to just learn how to put the put a, a, a sort of nix on uh, on uh, on life. It's not a life negation because sometimes when we think about well, it's supposed to be c- ceasing, uh, aiming at cessation of becoming and cessation of existence or being. Like, well, that's just promoting some sort of major wipeout. We're just trying to nullify our lives and stop experience and not feel anything. Um, but uh, it's important to understand that the, the, when we talk about uh, Nibbana or Nirvana or, the, or this, this principle of, of cessation of becoming, it's not a matter of, of stopping the world or stopping our mind or, or wiping out experience. Not tr- we're not trying to, to not feel. Um, that's what you use Thorazine for, you know, or, you know, what it, I mean, that was my era, but, you know. I don't know, I, there's probably a whole new array of pharmaceuticals that people, people employ nowadays to stop existing, you know. but no matter how hard you try, you know, that, that, that can only, even chemically, the, the things can only be muted and muffled for certain amounts of time, and then, whoom, you know, the mind comes back. That's its nature. So that this is not what we're talking about, we're not trying to to nullify existence, and oftentimes people misinterpret the Buddha's teaching as pointing at this, but that's not, not the intention at all, because that kind of nullification or that desire to wipe out, to not feel, to not experience, so fed up with being, having your heart tied like a tin can to the tail of a, you know, uh, a staggering old dog. <laughs> I'm fed up with this, I just want to not feel, you know, where's the bottle, where's the, where's the, uh, the pill pot? Um, that's what's called vibhava tanha, or the, the, the desire to not exist or to not be, to, the desire to annihilate. So the desire to become is bhava tanha, and the desire to, to, to get rid of is vibhava tanha. These are, and these are like a paired opposites. And they're both, they both cause as much trouble and, and difficulty, suffering as each other. Um, so what uh, the, the, the teaching points to, and what the, hopefully during the course of, the, of today we'll be able to to look at and explore is, is that uh, mysterious and wonderful middle way, which is um, the, uh, uh, in a way, the escape from that, the uh, uh, addiction to becoming and uh, learning how to find that and to, to discern how that is. And a lot of that's to do with, um, uh, again, I don't, don't want to be too technical, but in the dependent origination um, cycle, it's a lot to do with finding that bridge between feeling and craving, the Vedana-Tanha bridge. Because um, sometimes when we uh, in, in, uh, engaged in Buddhist meditation or listen to Buddhist teachings, uh, it can seem like we're trying not to feel anything or that you know, all, all kinds of um, feeling are to be dismissed or, or that any kind of pleasant feeling is, is somehow intrinsically a, a defilement or a problem. But that's not what the, the teaching points to. 
um, and that uh, the if if we are able to develop the kind of mindfulness that enables that enables us to discern feeling just as that, then painful feeling is a painful feeling. We don't add anything to it. There's not a kind of desperate struggle to get away from it or complaining about it, fretting about it, blaming, uh, worrying. Uh, that clusters around that, we just leave, this is a painful feeling. Um, a pleasant feeling, similarly, we don't get uh, entranced and intoxicated and carried away by a pleasant feeling or a sweet memory or a, or a bright idea, but oh, this is a pleasant feeling. We know it as a pleasant feeling. Where we cross the bridge to, to craving, from, from Vedana to Tanha, from feeling, crossing the bridge to craving, there's a, uh, it go, we're going from um, uh, I like it to I want it, I got to have it, or I don't like it to I can't stand it, I got to get out of here. And a story I, I often tell, which is um, frequently told by, uh, again, my teacher Ajahn Sumato, was when uh, he was a young monk in, in Thailand. Again, one of the reasons why he was learning to recite Yeats and, uh, uh, and Tennyson and, and uh, other kind of Victorian poets while he was sitting in his hut in Thailand, because life at his monastery, Wat Bapong, Ajahn Chah's monastery in the 1960s, was extremely boring. It was deliberately boring. But it's very much the kind of place where a lizard walks across your wall of your hut. That's, that's the event of the day. You know, right? But to sit there watching the you know, leaves, leaves fall off the trees in the hot season, it's like, that's the kind of entertainment you're seeking. You know? So uh, it was very, very plain, a deliberately very, very plain life. And uh, in, in the, it's a very strict monastery, and so there was very um, uh, pronounced uh, division between the, the nuns had their own section and they never mixed with the, with the monks, and the monks had their section, and they didn't mix with the, with the uh, women monastics. And, and the contact with the general lay community would be just going out in the early morning through the village with your arms bowl and receiving uh, uh, food offerings from the villagers, but you wouldn't engage in conversation or even eye contact during that time. So there was a very uh, strict and contained environment, and, um, and Ajahn Sumedho was a very junior monk at that point, would, would be just uh, spending most of his time at his hut uh, doing walking and sitting meditation and not really engaging with, with visitors very much. But because he was the only white monk in the entire province, or the whole northeast of Thailand at that time, I think, <laughs> he was a bit of a curiosity. So sometimes people would come to visit and want to see, you know, this famous, like, like the white crocodile. You know. <laughs> can I see? Can we see the white? And, and you know, in Thailand, they're very straightforward about this. Oh, can we see the white monk Lumpur? You know. <laughs> so I, usually Ajahn Chah would protect him somewhat, but occasionally he'd be he'd be sort of wheeled out to to meet. To meet people, because it was also incredibly inspiring that someone would, would you know, a guy who, was, who has a, a master's degree from Berkeley uh, gives that up a, a, a <laughs> and, uh, and also a um, uh, former U.S. Navy uh, soldier, and uh, so on, that, that someone would turn their back on a comfortable middle-class American life and go and live in this extremely poor monastery in the, in the most remote uh, part of northeast Thailand. So Ajahn Chah would invite him out to meet people someday, some days. And, and on this one occasion, there was a, a large group of, of uh, um, nursing students, uh, student nurses. from the, There's a big nursing college in the local town of Ubon. And every year, their teachers would bring them out to receive um, in, in instruction in Buddhism from the, 
Ajahn Chah was a very famous, well-known, well-respected Dharma teacher. And so um, Ajahn Chah had asked Ajahn Samedha to come and sit with him. These people were interested to meet this, this foreign monk. And so there he was, surrounded by about 40 or 50 young women uh, uh, student nurses in their little sort of turquoise and white uniforms from the, from the Ubon Hospital. And so this was far more uh, kind of close contact than, than he would ever have during the, in the course of the whole of the rest of the year with, with, um, with anyone from the opposite sex. And so uh, even though he was sort of sitting to one side and Ajahn Chah was doing most of the talking, Still, just being that, that close up to a lot of people and living a very strict monastic life, um, then uh, you know, he was a, a very uh, unusual situation for him. And so, uh, the, and also, as I, uh, as I said, Thai people are very straightforward about their comments. You know, so, like, just as the lay people would say to Ajahn Chah, can we see the white monk, please? <laughs> when uh, when the, this whole group from the nursing college had, had come, to visit and been there for a couple of hours, and when they they um, took their leave and uh, and left, and at the end of it, when the, when they'd all gone, Ajahn Chah turned to to uh, the young Sumato Bhikkhu and said, "So Sumato, what did that do to your mind?" <laughs> <laughs> you know, having forty or fifty attractive young women sitting in front of him for for two hours, and then his response was uh, in Thai it was "chop der my ao." which means, I like, but I don't want. And Ajahn Chah was so impressed with that, that for the next two or three weeks, pretty much every Dhamma talk that he gave, <laughs> he, uh, he took that as a theme, because he said, this is, this is uh, well, I think also he was very pleased that the, the young Sumato actually kind of understood the teaching so well, and was so well grounded in it. So it's not a matter of shutting off feeling and saying, no, I was just kind of turning them all into skeletons, you know, and, and that's like, I just didn't even notice anything. Oh, were they women? Oh, I didn't see. You know. Oh, really? You know, like, <clears throat> you know, because the, the hormones will have their way, you know. And uh, so anyhow, he, uh, but he, he saw that that was the thing. It wasn't a matter of negating the feeling that there was, there was interest or attraction, but he was just not turning it into the, crossing that bridge to from I like or this is a pleasant experience to I want I got to have so that that's really um, the 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 key point for, for uh, I like to look at and today is this, um, in terms of meditation is discovering that quality of being able to acknowledge that which that which is uh, that which is felt that which we perceive and know and to, to see when that crosses into, I can't stand, I've got to get out of, I've got to get away from, and how we get caught into that, that flow, or I've got to have, I'm, I want some more, I, I need to get this. Now, one of the ways that um, there's also characterized um, this in Ajahn Chah's teaching, <coughs> at the end of his life, he used to, um, like many teachers, he would have a like favorite little themes he would use for a, a few months or a year or two. And uh, at the end of his, his teaching career, um, he, uh, there was a, a particular phrase he used to use um, when, when people came to visit or asking questions. And he would say, uh, have you ever seen still water? And people would say, uh, yes. <laughs> Have you ever seen flowing water? And they say, Well, yes, of course. 
Have you ever seen still flowing water? Nam lining, nam lining, and they go. <laughs> never, never seen that. And so he said, the mind is like still flowing water, nam lining. The mind uh, it flows, perceptions flow, feelings flow, mental impressions flow. They they move constantly, but there's also stillness. There's that. There's a, there's a, that which knows the movement is not moving. It's not related to space, to time. It's uh, it's not located. In any way, it's perfectly still because it's outside of the world of of space and time. So these qualities are present together in the mind. There's there's stillness and there's movement, and so that so much of the practice and particularly this quality of Cessation of becoming. It's not a matter of trying to stop everything from moving, like freeze, <laughs> okay, wipe it out, freeze it, or being swept along by the becoming, like yeah, you, you jump on the next one and <laughs> and uh, chase after it. It's uh, it's not that because as we, uh, uh, even though that's exciting and interesting, you know, we know that it, it leads to disappointment. It's uh, even also just in the, the biochemistry of this. It's like the the endorphin flood. I think it's as it the um, as it lands on the lateral tegmentum in the brain. That's the the, the, the landing point. That's the landing spot. As the uh, the uh, the neurotransmitters land there, that's the hit. <laughs> that's the bhava. That's the thrill of bhava. That's the yes <laughs> moment. That's your lateral tegmentum activated. <laughs> I believe there might be some neuroscientists here who can correct me, but I. I think that's right. that's right. It's when the the endorphin flood hits, and that's uh, much of our society is is addicted to that. That's what the you know when you when you see an advert, <laughs> that's what it's hitting, is that oh wow that's interesting, <laughs> it's the the endorphin flood in the brain. That's the oh yes that's great this is exciting, and so that we can we it is a, a kind of addiction on, on sometimes on a physical level as well as a mental level. But to get to know that and to see that when we can recognize, yeah, this is interesting or this is, this is beautiful, but I don't need to grab it. I don't need to get caught in it. This is the chemistry. This is the sensual music of the world. And the, and the mysterious thing is that when we, when we don't get caught in it, we actually are able to enjoy it a lot more. Now, probably um, uh, you know, most of you have noticed for yourselves how that the, the moment of, of greatest anticipation or greatest, greatest excitement or satisfaction is just before the, 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 the promise has been fulfilled. And actually they wire people up with galvanic skin responders and detectors. That, and and this, is, this is actually the case where like someone is handing over the credit card <laughs> and to, to get the purchase. Before the actual thing you're acquiring reaches your hand, it's when it's guaranteed to be acquired, but you haven't quite got it. That's the maximum thrill. And when you've actually got the thing in your hand, you, the disappointment's already begun. <laughs> even, even your skin chemistry tells you that. It's like, oh, I got what I wanted. Oh, <laughs> dang! That's, that's how it works. So the Buddha nailed this like two and a half thousand years ago. So it's, a, it's finding that place in our heart where we can 
we can take that, that, that position of awareness that says, okay, well, there it goes, there it goes again. Um, and, and seeing the, 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 those flow of experiences happen rather than being, oh, no, how can I be disappointed again? I, I must, I've got to get the, you know, the, uh, the next model up. Yeah. <laughs> I should have got a, G, a G10 instead of a G7. <laughs> Dang. Okay, save up next time. But it's not getting the next model. You know, it's it's understanding the the heart that is the, the thing that makes a difference. So I'll leave my uh, introductory remarks there for a bit. And if people like to take a stretch for a couple of minutes to ease your knees and so on, then uh, we'll have the first sitting of the morning. <laughs> <laughs>